Hello everyone and welcome back for another podcast. Now, since we last spoke to you, lots of things have happened, but not for most of us. They have happened for Graham though, haven't they? Some of them have. Uh, Graham, who is just sat there quite smugly, um, <laughs> who's been to Goodwood and enjoyed himself immensely, I think, and then onto the SMMT, so we should hear about that a bit later on. But for me, Mike, I've not been. Jim, have you been? I've not been, no. Hello. Dave, have you been? Still waiting for my invitation. Yeah, you see, now I got to enjoy a ten and a half hour journey back with a toddler from North Wales back to the south coast. So that was immense fun. I really, really enjoyed doing that instead of driving to Goodwood, which is actually just down the road from my house. I will just say that's your fault for um, for going to Wales in the first place and for having a toddler, but I understand the reasons for having a child, whereas I'm not, not quite sure on the reasons for going to Wales, really. This is my own fault for having a child. It's a good job we like him, because otherwise this would be just hugely <laughs> inconvenient, wouldn't it, really? But no, my, my in-laws, who haven't seen Ozzy since he was... About eight months old, he's now two and a bit. And uh, yeah, we decided to drive up there and it was a very, very long journey. He hasn't got to the point where he can say, are we nearly there yet? So instead, he just makes a lot of noise and just says, out, 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 repeatedly, which is fine. Yeah, enjoyable for everyone. You need to buy a backseat DVD player. You know, it's, it's uh, we learnt that as grandparents. DVD, Gramps? What's a DVD player What's a DVD? on an iPad? Films come over the internet these days. Uh, not necessarily in the car and you live in the countryside. They're right, it's unreliable, so DVD works. Well, this is true. And it doesn't use all your data up, does it? Last time you had the uh, the pleasure of North Wales, at least you went in a, you went in the Focus RS, didn't you? So that at least makes it, although the uh, the mind-numbing bit of the motorway in between is, is dull in anything, at least you were in the right car and not burdened with child when you got there, so you could enjoy yes. the roads in the manner in which they were intended. But I think this time round it was, uh, I'd be guessing, in an SUV with a child in the back, so you can't yes. even really have too much fun yes. when you get there, can you? Well, they they live pretty much on the Evo Triangle, which is amazing, where you sort of um, flip through Clamberis and across Bessie Code, all those really lovely places like Cable Keurig or whatever it is. And I apologise to all of our, our Welsh listeners now for completely mispronouncing everywhere that I've been to. Um, but when you're in an, an SUV with everything in the back all loaded up, and, and I mean loaded up, you sort of wedge the child in and wedge everyone else in the car because uh, my wife was really keen not to put a top box on for some reason. All that happens is you go into the corners and you're awfully roly-poly. You know, you, you sort of wobble into a corner or wobble out of it. But because it does have a paddle shift, I could at least, you know, do that going through the corners and, and drop it a couple of gears each time and then go... At least in my head, uh, and then wobble around to the next corner. Yeah, now go broom, 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 louder, no, quieter. Daddy's in third now. What he does is he sits in the back, and usually when we stopped at a red light, he just looks at me and goes, "Go, go, Daddy, go!" Which is absolutely great. Or he goes, "Daddy, broom, Daddy, broom," because he wants me to wants me to go. He likes speed. He's always, always loved speed. So it's in the jeans. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember we we ne- very nearly got re- rear-ended at a set of traffic lights, and I was in in the Audi. Thankfully, so it was quite a bit quicker, and I could see this person. The lights had just gone green. And I could see they weren't going to stop, so I just stamped on it, and uh, we shot off down the road. He giggled his head off and then fell asleep. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely brilliant. He just he just loves going fast in the car, and don't we all? I guess that's why we're all here. I think that's pretty much the case. That is why we're all here. Anyway. 
So you got to see some cars go fast, I guess is my point, Graham, and we're not at all jealous. <laughs> I'll survive, even if you are. Mm. But well, uh, well, well, actually, just uh, just before we get on, Graham, uh, keen listeners to the uh, the podcast, we're going to make this one a little bit interactive uh, this week. So uh, we'll uh, we'll possibly have a, a whip round, see if we can get any sponsorship or some Patreon money from anyone at some point in the next twenty years, and uh, we'll have a little prize competition. So the uh, the first person to tweet us with the correct number of passive aggressive references to Graham <laughs> having to all these days out. And, uh, and the rest of us not being able to attend. The first person, you <laughs> might get a prize within the next 15 years. No promises, but drop us a tweet anyway at, uh, at UK Motor Talk uh, with a number of references and see how we get on. Anyway, here's a jolly report from Graham. Who's keeping score? We're, we'll let the listeners decide. Whoever picks the highest number, I think, like I say, I'm, I'm aiming for at least 20 just on my own. So I, I think the figure's going to be about <laughs> 80 and we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Just going to have Is a little this- sip of my bitter lemonade here. You shouldn't have a problem with those sorts of numbers. So go on then. How was Goodwood? Good. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, yeah, curious. Curious because uh, the quality of the show, I think, was as good as ever. Uh, anybody that can persuade both Mario Andretti and Roger Penske to uh, come over and ship dozens of cars over and so on and so on has to be putting something uh, quite impressive together. And, you know, he had for his Saturday night party, just like we all do, he had this Who playing. Not quite really? with the original lineup, but uh, the Oral Who played at the Saturday night party and um, apparently their uh, performance was louder even than the fireworks display. And that was, um, that was quite spectacular. A lot of cars rushing up the hill, uh, a lot of very good drivers. And, uh, interestingly, the... Well, for me, anyway... The hill record wasn't got anywhere near by the McLaren. It was Rob Bell, who was about six seconds off Roman Dumas' two-year-ago record in the IDR, which was... Really? Um, that is interesting. Well, I know it was uh, six seconds off, and it's it's a very short course. You know, was it 40 seconds to get up the hill in something yep. mega, mega, mega quick? That's 39.9 seconds. That's not bad, is it, for... That, it's it's not bad to be that quick, is it? Because bearing in mind the ID three was purely designed from scratch to get up For a hill that. very quickly. That's mm. all it was designed to do. Whereas the the McLaren was designed to do many other things and other corners and technicals and high top speed, yeah. this that the other. So I, I think that's not a bad effort, to be fair. No, I I, I quite agree. And we are talking about one point one six miles. Uh, so anything under a minute is pretty impressive, uh, particularly when you put uh, an eight-foot-high stone wall halfway up. Focuses the mind a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. You have to be very good, I think, to achieve anywhere near those sorts of numbers. And just for the record, this McLaren, that's is that the 720S GT... Oh, God, I've forgotten the name of it. The 720S GT3... GTX. Uh, yes. GT3. Yeah, X for extra. Extra, extra GT3-ness. Extra scared of the flint wall. But not mm. even the very, very latest uh, McLaren. Is but, it not? Um, oh, is no, that the new Artura? Artura, which I did have sight of in the supercar paddock. For a second there, I thought you could say you just you, you, know, you took it out for a spin, just to, to really rub it in. <laughs> After watching the hoe, you know, swinging from the chandeliers in the evening, I'd, and then the next day I, just blast up the hill in the McLaren. I didn't get an invite to the party, but then I never have, but there what? you go. Let me get the world's smallest violin out. There we are. I'll just start <laughs> playing that just for you. There we go. I'm going to put a phone call in. I'm going to put a phone call in. Hang on a second. 
But I did enjoy the lunch. So there. How was the atmosphere, given that we haven't had Goodwood for proper for a couple of years now, for obvious reasons? If you're listening to this in the future, we had a global pandemic around about 2020 and 2021, and it looks like it's that. not really going anywhere quick, thanks to the uh, actions of our lords and masters. But let's just leave that to one side. How was it? Did it feel like Goodwood? Was it, was it a good event? Was it nice to be there? Uh, it was nice to be there. It was uh, good in the sense that I think the quality of the show was good. And there were a lot of vehicles there, I think 550 cars and bikes, something like that. And as I've said this many times before, but it's nevertheless true. And it might be a cliche, but the cliches usually are true. You can stand at Goodwood and, uh, and if you're prepared to wait long enough, watch the whole history of motorsport go past you. On the other side of the fence, quite literally. What, where we were? Yes, that's it. The outsiders. In, in, in the next county. Where you rightfully would have been. Have some bread from my free lunch. <laughs> uh, there were certainly less people than is usually the case. And, and something that I noticed was that, the, uh, particularly on the Friday, Saturday, was that the age profile of the audience was completely different to usual. Rather older. Well, you know, just the rest of us were keeping the country going, Graham, that's all. <coughs> I, did, uh, uh, I, did, I did see a few people uh, moaning about that and the hoops you had to jump through, but I thought, well, this, this kind of sums up the attitude of certain people in this country, doesn't it, to the, uh, the restrictions. The other thing that's been very much Goodwood's selling point for many, many years now is that you could get to meet... F1 drivers and get autographs signed and, you know, all the top F1 teams would be there. And this time they weren't. All of the other teams had uh, agreed that they wouldn't be there with their drivers or with their teams because there was too much risk for the British yeah, Grand Prix, sure. which was just a week later. But McLaren decided not to do anything um, or to do things differently. Uh, and Daniel Ricciardo was certainly there on the Saturday, sans mask. Um, and uh, chatting to people. And uh, we tried to get to talk to Lando Norris on the Sunday, and the crowd there was about 25 deep. And there weren't no social distancing when you had to keep your elbows in, so I gave up on that because, frankly, I didn't like the risk. Poor Lando, they made his way up to uh, to watch the game, didn't he? Um, hmm. Very sad to see that. Got mugged and, and had his, his watch nicked as well in the process. So, I mean, certainly... Um, I can understand why the teams would be very protective of their drivers. Um, I'm not sure that's still the right environment necessarily if you want to ensure their, their safety, but still ridiculous. Something that was uh, interesting beside the McLaren stand was United Autosports. I wondered where sort of Zach Brown came out of when he moved into McLaren, and I believe he's a substantial shareholder in McLaren now. What I hadn't realised was he got so many cars. I'm told he's got about 60 cars in his collection of F1 and Le Mans cars. And wow. the older people amongst us will remember the name of Dickie Stanford, with mm. Williams for many years, who's now looking after all, all of Zach Brown's cars. Oh, they're being good hands. He has got quite a collection. I think there's a, he's got a couple of bets running with... Uh, Ricardo and with Norris over when you get a race win or if you get a podium or if you do XYZ then you get to drive one of these I think so uh, Lando's making noises about wanting to take Senna's McLaren on a, on a proper track date so he could open oh, it up Ooh, yeah. he said he felt uh, you know very very privileged and, and just you know in, in awe uh, of the car and, and the man who drove it full time before him um, 
but he said it was, you know, at, at Goodwood, it's obviously very twisty, very tight, flint walls, off camber, wet, greasy, etc. Uh, so there's only so much you could do with it. So he said he uh, did want to take it out properly. So who knows if he gets a, a race win under his belt this year, which is, to be honest, not, not looking too unlikely, really. Not impossible. He might have a go in one of those. And I think uh, Zach's got a bet with uh, with Ricardo to have a go in a NASCAR that he owns. But oh yeah, he's got he's got quite the collection, Zach, without a doubt. Daniel uh, drove uh, a Senna McLaren up up the hill on the Saturday, uh, and the last words I heard from him as he put his helmet on, I think I'm going to crap myself. <laughs> <laughs> There were quite a few uh, thrills and spills that I was uh, able to observe from a YouTube live stream um, of, uh, of a few cars popping it into the hay bales or uh, off at Malcolm and things like that. I mean, there was a BMW road car went off on the Thursday, the, the supercar road car day, um, binned it reasonably hard and all the airbags went off. So that was uh, a mm. bit embarrassing. But uh, saw a Jag go into the hay bales under the bridge. But what, what did make me chuckle the most was a... Um, I think it was a Paris Dakar type uh, monster truck Jeep, you know, double suspension, huge, great big 28 inch wheels, and even bigger tyres on it. Sort of overcooked it a bit into Malcolm, did a, a 360 bouncing into the hay bales, and carried on. The wheels never stopped spinning, didn't miss a beat, and I think did far more damage to the hay bales than the car. So it was uh, that was quite good fun to watch. Full send. Was that not Sebastian Loeb? Uh, it might have been. I, was, I, was, I wasn't close enough to I, see him. I think so. it was he, he driving that, that car. No, no, I wasn't there no no oh i think he has sufficient experience to bounce off the scenery and just carry on i think you're probably quite right with that i was offered a free magazine while at while at goodwood and uh oh, free to everyone or just to you yes yes, yes, yes yeah. just just a specific copy for me what was it called f1 business at the price of it uh i'm I would imagine they hand printed it just for me with probably some monks filling in the um the pictures because it was uh, 30 quid <laughs> or 200 quid a year for the subscription. So I won't be taking them up on their, their subscription offer of 190 quid, which I didn't think was a particularly generous offer. Nevertheless, I have to say, the magazine is very, very informative, if you can afford it. Just to interject sort of from a, uh, a weekend's point of view, I think Tom Cruise was at Goodwood and went to Wimbledon and went to the... Uh, final of the Euros, didn't he? So our, our very own resident Super Tom Cruise, Gra Graham Cruise, we shall call him. Where, where else did you go? Well, uh, I went to the SMMT Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders Open Day, which is an opportunity to test as many cars as you have the stamina, the time and the energy to test. So I didn't test uh, a huge number. Hang on a second. You say that you haven't driven that many. Between you... You managed to drive the VW ID3, the Honda E, the Bentley Mulliner in chauffeur mode, the Alfa Stelvio Quadrifoglio, the Genesis G80, a camper van, another camper van, an Alfa Romeo Giulia, the Suzuki A-Cross, a cross, who knows, who cares, Jeep Wrangler Overland, Fiat 500E Action, Vauxhall Mocha E, Peugeot 508 Hybrid 4, why? The Sangyung Musso, the Sangyung Rectum, Rexton, close. The MG5 <laughs> EV, which I think is probably the most one of the most exciting ones here in this list. And hear me out, we'll talk about that later. And Honda CRV and a Puma ST. Frankly, 
that's not just a few cars, is it? That's that's a lot of cars that uh, you managed to take out for a spin. Uh, how many cars did uh, did you guys drive, Jim? Dave, just wondered. Uh, the weekend uh, would have been uh, well. I managed two actually. If if you class reversing one off a drive and back onto a drive, just to straighten out a little bit. So yeah, I managed two at the weekend. Yeah, two, I'm about two the same cars. as that. Yeah, both both cars. Yes, it's um, very exciting. Very exciting. It does sound though. I mean, all joking aside, the SMMT day is very important, and uh, the trade at the minute is looking for any sort of green shoots it can grab hold of. And um, I know you you did take the opportunity. Graham, to speak with Mike Hawes, who's the Chief Executive Officer. Just to try and get a feel for where the industry's at, times have been tough. Brexit, pandemic, supply issues, etc. Are we looking hopeful for the near and medium term? Well, I think so the, the mood here today is obviously much more hopeful. It's the first time we've done such a major event. It's all outside, so it's still permissible. But, you know, there is a, a tangible much buzz about the place, which you always get on a test day. But, you know, given everyone's been locked down for 18 months, there's that enthusiasm there across the industry. Now, as you rightly said, the industry faces some huge challenges still, and we're not out of the woods yet. But I think there's increasing confidence seeping into the market if we can get you know some of these initial issues overcome most obviously in terms of you know short supply shortages then that pent up demand pull that through with these new technologies much more optimism as you go into next year we've had a couple of bits of good news of, of major investments major plans to build more here particularly the battery plants I think we're going to see more like that in the very near future, I think. Yeah, I mean, basically, with Brexit, and, you know, I don't like trawling back over the last five or six years, but that casts such a shadow on the attractiveness of the UK as a place to invest. It caused investment to stall. And it stalled just at the time when so many of our competitor countries were investing in battery plants, electric vehicle production, so we were sitting there trying to get this resolved. It's why the SMMT and the entire industry devoted so much energy to getting a deal. You rightly say two good pieces of news with Ellesmere Port and Sunderland the last couple of weeks. That wouldn't have happened without that deal. So it does vindicate, I think, the importance and the effort that so many people went on to making sure we had a deal and a deal that worked for the automotive industry. Are we seeing belatedly the government of the day providing a little more support to the industry than it perhaps has done in the last five years or so? Um, it's difficult to say. Yes, financial support obviously is gone, and you know, that is the way of the world, I'm afraid. And you'd like a level playing field, there's not. And so government support is sought wherever you might be locating. But always remember, the, you know, the government, in terms of securing a deal, securing a deal that works for the automotive sector, we know Boris Johnson personally discussed issues around, in our case, rules of origin for vehicles with Ursula von der Leyen as part of the last-minute negotiations. And we've ended up with a deal which can work for the industry. It is now about trying to recover that lost ground of the last five years. So for that, we need to continue to work with government. And the spearhead is uh, EVs, electric vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, government ambitions, well known, 2030 for the end of sale of conventional petrol and diesel, 2035 to wrap up the end of of hybrids. We'll see in the next day or so what the shape of that strategy or what you know, how they structure that they may put in place to try and accelerate that transition. But we want to make sure that we do get there, but we get there by sustaining a strong market. Because if there's a lot of sticks rather than carrots, 
you can get customers just sitting on their hands. I'll mm. stay with my current vehicle rather than buying a new one. Once you drive some of these vehicles, these new electric vehicles, then they say you won't go back. But it is about overcoming some of those barriers to take up. So what are the things that you need a government, any government, to put in place to make that happen, to drive things forward? Let's do a few things. First of all, you know, these new technologies are more expensive than the technology they place. We haven't got those economies of scale which has driven down the or driven the efficiency up and driven down costs of internal combustion engines. So long-term commitment to incentives, whether that's in terms of tax breaks for business customers, for retail customers. Secondly, infrastructure. All the surveys show that one of the biggest barriers is people's hesitancy because they're concerned about their ability to charge. Not everyone has a driveway and more people might be concerned about will there be that public charging infrastructure. And thirdly, it is about education. It is about, you know, this, it's a much more complicated landscape. For the past few decades, it's been a choice of petrol or diesel. Now there's petrol, there's diesel, there's hybrids, there's mild hybrids, there's plug-in hybrids, there's pure electric, there's hydrogen. Much more complicated environment. We need to make sure that the consumers understand what the choice is and what the right choice for them, given their driving needs, their charging needs might be, so they make the best choice. You think about you know purchases now. You know, fleet buyers, incredibly well-informed purchases. You know, by definition, that's their job, and they can you know they can work out what the cost of ownership is going to be over the life cycle that they'll have that vehicle. For private retail, again, a lot more information is there on the market, but you still have to be very you know there's there's still uncertainties. How much are you going to be paying for uh, the energy you're going to charge? That's going to depend whether you charge at home or whether you charge someone else. Longer term, we know the current level of fuel duty is unsustainable because as you make this shift, treasury revenues are going to decline. At some stage, government's got to address that. So there are still uncertainties out there, and whenever there's uncertainty, it causes people to hold off. To get to 2030, we've got to minimise that hold off and get people into these vehicles. Well, it's nice to see some positivity coming out of the trade now. Let's face it, there's been lots of struggles through COVID, through chip shortages, meaning it's been difficult to put some of the cars together. I mean, if you're buying a new Mini, apparently they've dropped the B&O system out of it. I mean, why even bother if you can't get your B&O? But I think it's good to see that the industry is is looking up. We've got a viable electric midterm future now where potentially if you buy an electric car, it, it can be used properly every day as a normal car. Yeah, I mean, I've, um, I've you know, been experiencing firsthand uh, roaming around in an electric car for the uh, the last oh, month or so now, really. And it's uh, the the range anxiety certainly doesn't need to be there. I mean, to be fair, most of what I've been doing is local journeys, but I've been lending the car out to various people and uh, we've got charging points at work and at home. But the more and more I've done to research charging points and journeys and things like that with uh, with customers and just trying to work out how uh, an electric vehicle will fit into their lives you know 99% of them walk away really quite happy with um with the range on them and where they can actually charge them up and uh and if you well I mean if if you take it easy the uh the Mustang Mackie uh made it into the record books in uh, the last couple of weeks didn't it as it drove from Land's End to John O'Groats and only 840 miles yeah, 8.40. only had to charge for 45 minutes on the entire trip, I believe. And uh, yep. I think if you tried to do that in an internal combustion engine car, 
I dare say you'd probably spend longer than 45 minutes in total at petrol stations when you're getting out, filling up, going in, paying, etc. So that represented a um, real-world range, a real-world test of uh, of the car of 500 miles or over 500 miles, I think. So if uh, if you're so inclined, you can get that range out of it. I don't think anyone really has to worry too much about charging it, do they? But it's quite clear to see, though, that the general adoption of EVs, you know, Volkswagen have got uh, quite a, a decent selection of EVs and a rather good ID3, ID4 EV platform and you've only got to look at the numbers to see how VW are, are killing it basically in the sales chart at the moment. I mean they've uh, they've blitzed past Ford well and truly and, and are leading the way. You know VW are number one at the moment. So on the Volkswagen stand here at uh, the SMMT test day with Mike Orford from Volkswagen who, um, well, there's been a lot of demand here this morning for the ID3, the ID4, the, the two uh, EVs. Very, very important cars for Volkswagen's future. Uh, it's difficult to underestimate, really, how important the ID3 is, and consequently as well the ID4, to Volkswagen. When we showed the concept for it a few years ago, we positioned it as the third big chapter in Volkswagen's history. We showed the Beetle on, on one side, the Golf in the middle, and then the ID3 on the, uh, the right-hand side. And that's absolutely right for us now, that our goal is to bring electric cars to the people, because we are the people's car. And the ID3 has done just that. It's doing really, really well. It's on a bespoke platform, so it's required a lot of investment from the company. Looking at the ID4, the ID4 is an SUV, which is the biggest market sector in the world right now. And the ID4 is doing really well too. It's more of a world car than the ID3. The ID3 at the moment is sold only in Europe, but the ID4 is a world car and has actually just been voted world car of the year a few months ago so it's been really well received I, I would just take you back a step there because your comment about the bespoke platform a lot of people won't realize that the most expensive part of developing a new car is invariably the base bit i.e. the suspension the, the, the steering the wheels the, the chassis etc etc it, it's it's a big big investment to go completely new rather than redevelop something that you've already got in, in stock, so to speak. That's going to take a lot of recouping. You need to sell a lot of cars to cover that. We do, and um, if there's something Volkswagen is very good at is building up and uh, mass production very quickly. We are one of the biggest vehicle producers in the world with factories in many countries selling in 153 countries. So for us, almost that's the easy bit. The hard bit for us is a shift in building a car that is updatable during its lifetime, a bit like a phone. We haven't yeah. done that before making a car that's focused as much on the software as the hardware. That's been the challenge for us as a, as a manufacturer that's traditionally built petrol and diesel cars. But the volumes are ramping up really, really quickly. I mean, in the UK, the, the ID3 was the best-selling electric car in April. And across Europe, ID4 and ID3 are really flying now. So that's going really well. But you're right, it's so expensive to develop a, a new vehicle. It's not cheap at all. And that's why we've got that benefit of the economies of scale by having the same platform across all our uh, group brands. We call it MEB, a modular electric platform. Picture a chocolate bar with all the chunks. That's the shape of the battery, and that is laid below where you sit down, below the seats, between the two axles of the car. And it means the car's really space efficient because all that is purely designed as a battery car. So with the ID3, for example, it's the size of a Golf in terms of its length, but inside, it's got as much space as the next car size up a Passat. So it's a really clever platform. Yeah, no, it's 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 very interesting to uh, to to talk about that that technology 
and what it's benefiting us. I mean, aside from cleaner, greener, and so on and so on, we're actually going to get, if you like, more space for the money. Absolutely, you get more space for the money. And another benefit, which is becoming ever more important to people, is that the ID3 and the ID4 they're built net carbon neutral. So the production of the car is from renewable energy at the factories. So really, it's delivered to the customer net carbon neutral. If the customer then goes on to use net carbon neutral energy, some for renewable sources, they could run this car with, without any impact on CO2 on the, on the planet. And of course, right now, that is a really big focus. It's no surprise, I think, their electric offering is probably the strongest when you blend it with the badge, the uh, the reputation for reliability. You know, even ignoring the Dieselgate scandal of a couple of years ago, that all that seems to have gone away because they've had to work so hard to clean up their image. I think it's pushed Volkswagen down the line slightly quicker than some of the other manufacturers. I mean, when, when all the other manufacturers come out with... Um, First of all, a bit of greenwashing when they come out and say, oh, it's a mild hybrid. It's, well, it's it's not really, is it? That's tech it's that's been around for donkey's years. And, yeah. you know, you, you should have put that on the car years ago. Don't be ridiculous to call a car with a beefed up starter motor a mild hybrid. It's it's absolute nonsense. It is good, but it's, it's nonsense. Oh, it's, it's good. And it makes the car better without a shadow of a doubt. It's, it's a great bit Definitely of technology, does. but don't plaster that all over the front page of your website as here are our green credentials you know we have we have all these electrified vehicles because they're all mild hybrid that that doesn't work that doesn't wash for me um but all the all the manufacturers that proudly declare oh by by 2030 we'll be all electric well yes you will otherwise you'd be out of business because it's the law it's you know it's it's like saying oh well this year i'm not going to murder anyone aren't i a good citizen well no, you're not, because it's against the law. So don't, you know, don't be proud of it. It's it's just simply sticking to the rules. But um, yeah, I think the the mainstream adoption and uh, and rolling back to Goodwood, the electric avenue that was there, and all the vehicles on display, and the actually how big of a part of the festival that was. I mean, Goodwood's been quite responsible for for converting uh, diehard petrol heads uh, into EVs over the last couple of years, particularly with the, the RD Pikes Peak running up the hill in the quickest time. That's, you know, a real watershed moment. But I, th- I think in, in general, the, the public just want EVs, like EVs. They're, you know, they've gone away from Tesla, early adopter, oh, I'm not sure about this, to, to that's, that's what people want, isn't it? But I dare say we need a few smaller, more uh, normal-sized EVs. Most of the manufacturers seem to concentrate on uh, the large SUVs, which which is obviously easier because if you've got to fit a big battery in it, have a big car with it, or you have the Honda E, which is uh, a relatively small range. But I think the the Mini, lack of B&O stereo aside, the Mini probably strikes quite a reasonable balance, I think, doesn't it, between size and range and whatever else. It was a very, very impressive display, the, the Electric Avenue. The, the fact that just about everything which is available on, on the European market as an EV was was there uh, and people were climbing in and out of them and and in that respect a, a little bit like an old-fashioned motor show people can jump in and out and uh, just just get the feel of the vehicles i do mm. remember a few years ago um when i was at goodwood <laughs> when tesla were just starting to make what looked like more normal cars and weren't sort of warmed over or rebadged lotuses will and i went along to the tesla stand and um, went to have a look at the the new model s which looked 
wonderful and looked like a normal car compared to what Tesla had um, output before. But there was just this distinct feeling of cultism about the place. There were lots of lots of oh. young people with the same haircuts, all wearing the same uniforms, all wearing <laughs> the same sort of gilets, and they all had that slightly distant look in their eyes. The Tesla-rati. One day, Mr. Musk would tell them that the spaceship was following the satellite, and then they'd all have to go and drink a special drink and lie down, and they'd all go with him. You know, it was it was slightly freaky, and it was. Um, we came away saying our goodbyes and thank yous, and uh, we won't be buying one at the minute, but we'll be sure to get in touch. And very impressive, very impressive cars. But I think you're absolutely right. Once once you can buy what looks like a normal car that you're used to sitting in, that has dials where you'd expect to see dials, and all that sort of thing, then you know that's when people are going to start adopting electric cars on mass when they are familiar and comfortable with them mm. i think was it was it shortly after that meeting that uh, that will bought a couple of shares in uh, in tesla and he's now sold them and uh, and bought the bahamas hasn't he so that's where he is these days so he's done quite yes, well out of that Pretty much, and I believe he's due to sort of fly within about five miles of space next week with his friend Richard or something. I, I, know, I could be could be wrong. I'm losing the track. Uh, talking of electric cars, and just it's just come to mind there. I've been reminded that one of the cars that you tested at the SMMT day was the latest offering from MG. Is it the MG Five, which is a fully electric estate car? Does the world need a fully electric estate car? Is this the way in? Yes, do you think, it does. To- it definitely yes, does. I mean, the yeah, the MG five, <laughs> I'm fundamentally impressed by how unimpressive it is. In terms of the car itself, it looks it's just an estate car. It is just a estate car, but it does all the things that estate cars do. So, I mean, if this was a car, it would be your Jeff, wouldn't it? It would be the, the chap, your next door neighbour, or you know, y- your mate that goes, "Oh, yeah, it's fine. Oh, you need something from IKEA? Don't worry, I'll nip up there and go for you." Do you want anything taken to the tip? It's that kind of that kind of car, and it is cheap. It, it is is a cheap way into EV ownership. A, a practical, sensible, just a car. There's not a lot really that you can get for that sort of money. That twenty-seven grand EV. Yes, you can you can get smaller stuff, but family sensible proposition. I mean, you're you're pushing a bit further when you get into your your ID range. Well, the base of those are sort of the the early thirties, I think, aren't they? It's worth looking at when when you look at the. I mean, twenty seven is is obviously a lot cheaper than the VW range, or uh, cheaper than the Mackie, and then up to the I Pace or the Tesla or uh, Audi territory. But of course, it's is worth at the moment. Bearing in mind before the uh, the government no doubt changes the rules on taxation. You know, fuel duties uh, for a long, long time been a good earner for the government. But, uh, you know, I've been chatting to uh, to plenty of people who have, uh, uh, you know, a, a Puma or a similar size car that's, say, £25,000 brand new. Uh, and if they're, they're doing a bit of mileage, not so much over the last year, obviously more people have been working from home, but their their normal annual mileage is fifteen, twenty thousand. 20000 You know, they do a bit of commuting for work. Um, it's it's worthwhile, and anyone listening at home, you know, sort of do do a few sums on what your car costs you, not just to uh, to buy it, uh, PCP it, lease it, rent it, whatever you do with it every month, but to run it and fuel it up as well. You know, I ran the figures for uh, for one couple, and their their twenty five thousand pound Puma was costing them four hundred pounds a month, and their their daily commute was costing them four hundred pounds a month. So they're they're probably up to eight hundred quid for the car. Uh, something like a Mustang Mackie, yeah, with a a little deposit, it's it's six, seven, eight hundred pounds a month. But 
to uh, to fully fill up the Mackie with electricity uh, at home costs you about a tenner uh, even if you use a public fast charging network it's probably only 15 maybe 18 pounds something like that so that's that's a real world efficiency converting it back into miles per gallon if you work out the monetary value of it of 140 150 to the gallon uh, even better for this one couple their their workplace had just started putting in charging points which were free to all their staff because they got a government grant and a super tax deduction and this that the other uh, so they could do all of their electrical charging at work so you run a few numbers and they end up driving around in a car that's fifty thousand pounds for the same if not actually a little bit less money than a car that costs twenty five thousand pounds so it's it's certainly worth looking even if you think the car's that bit more expensive you know run run a few numbers and look at running costs and see how you get on but i certainly think we need more normal size cars you know slightly more shopping trolley sized cars dare i say it's something like the the honda e but maybe with a slightly bigger range or or just come down in price that little bit so that uh, your average person doing you know six nine twelve thousand miles a year um can uh, can make the same sort of savings and then there'll be a, a big shift in your chat with with mike cause graham you touched upon or he touched upon the fact that um there's obviously going to have to be a change to the government's tax structure because obviously traditionally you've been taxed on how much fuel your car uses or the size of the engine particularly and its emissions but obviously when we're all driving around in something that's electric how is that going to work what what exactly do you think the changes are going to be i i can't imagine that any chancellor is going to sort of write off uh, 40 billion pounds in uh, in various forms of taxation that the motorists currently have to endure so uh it it's it's going to change yes uh there's going to have to be some sort of parity and uh that you referred to the cost of electricity that electricity if that is the fuel that electricity is inevitably going to cost a lot more or something's going to cost a lot more but i'm not uh, i'm not sure they're just sort of some very quick maths off the top of my head you know if you're um, the money that you put into the government coffers, if you uh, again, if we go back to that twenty-five thousand pound puma, uh, the VAT that gets paid on that when it's brand new uh, goes straight to the government, and then there's the the tax and the VAT uh, on the tax and on the fuel itself as well. So you get the uh, the fuel, the duty, and then the tax on the tax as well. Uh, all that goes Sounds into fair. the government coffers, but if you instantly double the price of the vehicle, well, you're doubling the amount of VAT that uh, that goes to the taxman. So, off the the purchase price of a Puma, you know, four thousand pounds ish on the VAT. Purchase price of a, a Mackie, eight thousand pounds ish on the VAT. An iPace or something like that, even more. So there's there's a, a very big chunk of money goes to the government up front on these electric cars. Quite so, but you've still got to go a long way to make up. A little shy of forty billion pounds. Fuel, of course, is um, increasing on an almost daily basis at the moment as well. So um, that works perfectly for the Chancellor of the Exchequer because his take on that is quite substantial. But there has to be a change. Mike was quite right to identify that. You can't make the numbers work, and and however you do it, there has to be something which will uh, have to go up mm. to replace that missing income to the, to the nation. Petrol is an interesting one, isn't it? It's, it's becoming an expensive habit at 60-odd P per litre or whatever it is in, in the tax that you have to pay. And I wonder if, like smoking, it will become a more 
a more expensive habit as, as as time goes on and then it'll be just left for us enthusiasts whilst we fumble around in our pocket for a tenner's worth of uh, a fuel per litre whatever it's going to be but let's face it there must be a reason why when you uh, when you get an electric car charging socket fitted now it has to be a smart unit there's got to be a reason for that and you wonder if at some point whether those kilowatt hours if it's being used to fuel your car is suddenly going to retract some kind of extra duty or tax i think that's inevitable yeah with without a doubt that's the way it'll go like i say i think the there will need to be that balance and if your your initial purchase is putting an extra four thousand pounds or five thousand pounds or even more in the government coffers you know if uh, even if you spend a lot of money on fuel let's say 400 pounds a month which is a good chunk of change every month to spend on fuel and more than most people probably spend a more typical amount is is probably more like 200 pounds on fuel let's say so you're putting let's say 100 pounds into the government coffers you're putting 1200 pounds in fuel duty a year into the government well actually if you've paid an extra four or five thousand pounds in VAT up front, well actually that's you for the next four or five well, years. If that is the way that the Chancellor chooses to go. So there's no instant cause to say that the Chancellor is gonna to have to put your home kilowatt electricity usage through your smart metered car charger up to let's say a pound a kilowatt hour or something like that because i think that that'll kill it i mean we'll see a gradual shift no doubt over the next eight or nine years i think it'll 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 shift faster than that if you want to get people into evs you don't want to put the price up because that's the most sensitive area and frankly the cost of the fuel is i think going to be for most people a little less sensitive Particularly, I mean, I drove uh, on the M25 yesterday past one of the services that was offering fuel at 149 a litre, which is a lot of money by anybody's standards. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to and didn't fill up at that price. Uh, but I did see a survey from one of the universities, and I can't remember which one it was. Uh, they did a survey of, of Tesla uh, owners of several hundred from which they got that the uh, fuel cost, the electricity cost, was typically around £47 a month. That's a very reasonable sum of money, if that's what it is. It'll be interesting to see how they manage to sort of spin the you're doing damage to the environment thing when we're all allegedly using clean, green electricity, uh, whereas before you were being punished at the pocket for uh, daring to go out in your polluting vehicle and killing bunnies and children and ruining their futures and all that sort of thing. Um, whether or not they might give you a break if you if you are subscribed to Bulb or Octopus or something like that, who are specifically getting their electricity from windmills and um, the sea and <laughs> fairies' tears or wherever else they come from. I mean, how they know. The electricity that comes down my wire is electricity. The electrons can't be diverted from the North Sea windmill farm, can they? Sorry if I'm being a tad cynical. But there is a point here that... You know, up to now, we've been told it's bad to drive cars. We mustn't go out in cars because we're polluting everything. When the point of pollution is no longer at the tailpipe and we're all gliding around not polluting anybody and it's all being pushed onto the power stations and so on, they can't pull the, well, we're we're making you pay for the privilege of polluting the planet because, um, well, all my stuff's being carbon offset. I'm getting all this from, as I say, from windmills, from renewable sources. What's the excuse they're going to pull out next time, I wonder? Well, yeah, cause I, I think there is a balance to be struck between um, the the tailpipe emissions 
uh, of a traditional car and like you say where where does the electricity come from i i think almost you you know we as we as motorists need to separate ourselves out from that you know the how many carbon dioxides uh, are produced in uh, in making the electricity that i use every year that's that's you, you know that's the problem of british gas of edf of octopus of whoever supplies your electricity almost to worry about you know we we need to focus on what we can do and i think the um the levies or the penalties that should be made on the energy companies for not cutting their CO2 again could go a good chunk of the way to offsetting that if you took uh, just a small percentage of uh, the big six energy companies profits over the last couple of years and outweighed that against fuel duty um, you know British Gas is certainly more able to afford uh, topping up the government coffers than the average motorist is so there needs to be a shift there where the taxation goes if you've got a company sat there making billions of pounds profit well if if they could chuck another couple of percent in the government coffers that's that's one thing but the uh, the yeah the notion of road tax polluting size of engine etc it it was odd with a uh, one round of vehicle excise duty changes that meant as long as you kept your money Mustang V8 for five years, it became cheaper to run under the new regime than the old regime. So the the notion that anything to do with road tax was uh, was based on emissions and pollution was was complete nonsense at that stage. The uh, the wise economical choice was to buy a Mustang V8 and run it for at least five years, and you will save money. So it's it's it'll probably end up more as a as a flat rate for every vehicle than. You know, rather than the free for the electric cars or 140, 150 quid for everything else and the £3,837 a month or whatever the mini costs you, Gates, it'll, uh, it'll be more of a just a flat fee per vehicle. Yeah, it's 340 quid a year now. Will the lack of carbon dioxide being emitted by cars lead to fewer respiratory illnesses and less of a burden on the NHS? And it's but you know, going back to uh, to smoking cigarettes um, for for a long, 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 long time, smokers and the tax that they put into the government more than paid uh, for the NHS costs of treating smoking-related diseases. So it was more economical to let the country carry on smoking because if the country had stopped smoking overnight, it would have gone bankrupt pretty much. Well, at that point, let me make an admission, which was that I didn't. Although I went there to drive some of the EVs, my first thought was the first car that I saw when I sort of walked out of the uh, the door was was just the opposite of that. 90 grand's worth of um, Alfa Stelvio uh, Quadrifoglio which is just just been facelifted as a car I've always really liked. And on the hill course, the, the twisty mountain course that they have there, it's an absolute gem. Anything that's a 180 mile an hour, four-seater, four-door car, I'm much in favour of, particularly if it hasn't got a Porsche badge on it. Um, <laughs> and, and just an absolute gem of a drive, rock steady at, at 100 on the bowl, and just a, a great drive. An old-fashioned great drive. So I'm an unreconstructed V8 and V6 and so on driver by choice. And uh, I absolutely love that. You would have thought it would do quite well on the mountain course, wouldn't you, given it's called Stelvio? (laughs) (laughs) You would would hope, wouldn't you? I have to admit that uh, of all the bits and pieces, I am still quite tempted by an electric Mini after, after you sort of look at the cost of everything and running it and all the rest of it. But that aside, Graham best car for you there was that the stelvio quadrifalatio 
yeah, I, 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 for me, it was the best car I drove, I think. Uh, the most interesting, because I took the Bentley Mulliner uh, around the uh, hill course. And, it, I mean, it was a great car, you know, wonderful car, but just like a fish out of water, you know, you need a nimble car. And the Bentley Mulliner is not. Do you remember I circulated some photos recently of the Bentley Continental? Uh, an old late 50s one that I saw somewhere. And, Indeed, uh, when yes. I, when I talked to one of the guys on the stand, he said who knew rather a lot about the car, at least was well informed, and he said, "Well, of course, that was that was you know what we um, what we used as our, our design master, if you like. So the, the 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 curves of the rear wheel arches are very similar to that. And I I was delighted inside that despite being a sort of high tech inside, they've got a you know James Bond like rotating dash." So you could have analog instruments as well. That is cool. I do like that. And and um, or a blank screen if you particularly wanted such, and and chrome flick switches, which was an absolutely delightful. Mm. And, and, and um, all this just to take you to Goodwood, Graham. I mean, that's <laughs> it's. Oh dear. <laughs> Worst car there. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't think I drove anything that I thought was very very poor. Um, but then that's maybe just about selecting the ones that all the, the the younger lads like you were going for were the McLarens. Everybody wanted to drive the McLarens. It was there. There were McLarens it's... there to drive. I mean, if if only the motor traders amongst us were invited to the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders Day Out, mm. what a, mm-hmm. what a wonderful day out that would have been. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine any part of that would be useful to any of us. No, not at all. It used to be the case when when it was um, it was based at Silverstone. Uh, it used to be the entirety of the trade, and that was uh, it was a lot more fun because it was on the Grand Prix circuit. But there you go. That was a long time ago. I mean, you asked about there about um, sort of what was the worst car there. I mean, is there such a thing as a bad car these days? I mean, is the standard now that I, I don't think there is. No, no, no. I'm not sure there is. I, I, think, I think, you... think largely due to the fact that you that effectively what you do with most cars these days is you get in, you kind of indicate the rough direction you want to go because a lot of cars don't really have the same sort of feel through the steering and you plug your iPhone or your Android into it. That's basically it. Yeah. Chatting to uh, to an ex-colleague who's uh, who's moved on, so is now uh, at an alternative uh, source of employment and his uh, company car is a Kia. Uh, and he said, you know, for, for months and months and months, he was sort of struggling to find any real difference between uh, Kias and Fords in terms of, you know, there's, there's subjective things. And do you like the design of the dash or the headlights or whatever else? And, you know, after years of working with one manufacturer, you kind of get used to things. So assume that that's the best way of doing it. Um, but he said it wasn't really until he he uh, was was heading back one night and thought, oh, I'll I'll sod the fuel economy and and see how we get on because he's uh, he's paid on a pence per mile. So the more frugally he drives, uh, the more money he he can uh, he can save. Um, and he, uh, but he said he started pressing on, and then it was really really obvious that the Kia was nowhere near as good as the Ford uh, in terms of chassis dynamics and steering feel and handling and things like that but it's I, I think we're probably in the minority amongst us that we really really care and feel about things like that I mean ride comfort everybody can judge um, noise everybody can judge and, and like I say the appearance and design is subjective 
Um, but, you know, whether a car understeers or oversteers, does that matter to 90% of the population? Mm. Does steering yeah, feel yeah. matter to 90% of the population? Probably not. I thought there were, there were some, some features on some of the cars there. The uh, Honda E has no door mirrors, wing mirrors, whatever you choose to call them. Um, it has tiny cameras and then it has a very, very small screen at each end of the dashboard. And it takes a little bit of getting used to. But it's all about aerodynamics because, uh, you know, you don't want uh, bits sticking out if you're trying to improve the range of an EV. Another thing is something which relates to Kia, as we were speaking about earlier, which is uh, the higher end models that when you put your indicator on, if you've got the TFT dash, which you may or may not have due to the chip shortage, um, the dial on the left or the right shows the camera on that's looking backwards down the side of the car in your blind spot so you actually see in your field of vision in the dash what is in your blind Mm. spot so you know if you're safe to overtake or not which is a fantastic idea idea. and i think that should be standard fit why why is it not then uh, well, I drove an, an MG ZS that had this fitted. It had the 360-degree camera and on the dashboard, or rather on the on, on the, the screen for like the nav and everything else. It switched to the camera, so if you were indicating left and you were approaching a roundabout or whatever, you could see down the side of the car, cyclists coming or whatever, great. What it also did was interrupt the sat-nav. So if you were on a roundabout and you just were about to go on the roundabout and you were turning or whatever and you're indicating right, for example, it's telling you to take the 8th exit or 7th exit or whatever, it completely removed the sat-nav, so you had no idea where you were going. Well, that's just <laughs> that's just crap design. I mean, the one that that's I've terrible seen... terrible design. Kit, well, it takes away one of the virtual dials, so it's either the taco or the speedo, depending on what you've got, or if it's an electric car, how much charge you're using. Yeah, and yeah. you've still got the speed, you've still got a digital speed in the middle of the dash, and I believe you've still got the nav in the middle, so you've still got an arrow going left, right, straight on. That's a much cyclist. better idea. So it's, it's just a really logical way of doing it and i i think if you do it like that then that's well executed doing it so it wipes out one of the primary functions of how to how to get the car safely where you want to go somebody who needs to rethink that somewhere in china i'd say unless that came from longbridge in which case well there you go well is is there something to be said for uh you know a, a huge lack of lane discipline on roundabouts these days particularly uh motorway junction you know, flyover, underpass, overpass, roundabouts these days, where nobody seems to have a clue what lane to be in. Is is it because they're too busy looking at the nav screen, trying to, you know, like like you used to play Mario Kart, the challenge was to play, uh, do an entire race without looking at the top screen, only look at the map view on the bottom. Is that what people are trying to do round roundabouts at the moment? <laughs> so is the MG thing, uh, you know, listen carefully, I shall say this only once, take the fourth exit, and then you just need to count to four. Oh, tough call. I think what happens on those roundabouts, in my experience, is it's everybody just going to the front of the shortest queue so they can try and do everyone off at the lights when they change so that they can be first away, which seems to be the pattern for most driving these days, in my experience. That's why, to be fair, lots of uh, lots of EVs are very handy for that because their, their 0 yeah. to 30 acceleration is phenomenal. And uh, there have been a couple of times when I've been in the in the Mach-E and sort of said, well, I know I, know I can beat. 90 odd percent of cars off the light so it, it doesn't really matter what lane i'm in because i know i can get to the gap before anybody else so but of course when everybody's in evs that'll be less of a uh, an advantage Not to 20 in a mini electric is faster than it is in an m5 apparently that that first initial pulling away because of the electric bit so i, I kind of get that yeah i can imagine that 
a big problem with roundabouts, and perhaps the thing that irritates me the most about drivers, are wazzocks that decide that the best thing to do is to pull up a roundabout and not indicate that they're turning off. So you, you pull yes. up the roundabout, the person next to you, on your right-hand side, is actually turning left, and they'll sit there for bloody ages and then just turn left without signalling. Yes, I, I frequently uh, indicate to those people that, you know, what what they're doing is essentially, you know, the, the way that you roll uh, a dice at a casino. You know, you have a, a dice in a cup, so you just shake the cup vigorously and shake. Then throw the uh, the dice over yeah. and, uh, and inform them yes. of that when they, uh, when they turn. But they, they just look at you a bit odd, as, as if you're the one doing something wrong. I mean, it's they do. infuriating, to be honest. This goes back to uh, Elon Musk's point that... Uh, the Tesla won't have indicators because it will know which way you're going to go and indicate for you. <sighs> to be honest, is that a bad thing? If I mean, if a computer is guessing, to be honest, if it just guesses 50% of the time and gets it right, that's probably better than 75 to 80% of, uh, of modern motorists, isn't it? So, I don't know. And they, and they, are, they are clever now, aren't they? I mean, if you think about, we mentioned the Mackie earlier, the car learns what things you want, puts the right things on the dashboard because it knows you want to press them. Teslas, for example, you go the same way home probably every night. Let's say psychologically it's a good idea to, to, to do something different on, a, on your Friday when the last day you work, whatever. But most of the time, you drive the same way home. Now, if you do that, the Tesla knows that that's the way you drive home. And it will pop up with a warning on the dashboard saying, oh, you can save some time by going a different route home tonight. You haven't set the nav. It just knows that's the way that you go. And it knows there's a problem on the route. And it tells you. See that that works very well. Apart from um, my uh, my phone went through a habit of uh, of alerting me a few hours before a Grand Prix because I'd set all the uh, the reminders for all the sessions when I was at work. So it you know it would ping up on my phone. You know, leave in ten minutes to get to the south of France. Traffic is light, and I'm thinking <laughs> I'm, I'm in the south of England. It's probably a bit longer than that to be honest but uh or the uh the other local landmark the uh the Mackie seems to have picked up is the pub next to work so I get in the car first thing in the morning and it says it'll take you 22 minutes to get to the pub which is um which is great news but I rarely end up there and also the pub has been converted into a block of flats now so it's a bit tricky mm, breakfast pint <laughs> We're not normally ones to go and promote other people's podcasts, but uh, we have to grit our teeth sometimes and admit that there are others out there. And the uh, Alpine, Alpine, depending on whether you're this side or that side Alpine? of the channel. Alpine. And Alpine. I know which side of the channel I'd rather be on, but sadly I'm marooned on uh, the Johnson <laughs> Archipelago at the minute. Anyway, uh, the Alpine <laughs> Formula One team has launched Prost in the Paddock, which is the first podcast series dedicated to none other than Alain Prost. Now this sounds like it could be quite good because I've always been quite a fan of Alain Prost. I grew up in the era of Formula One when he was dicing with uh, the likes of Ayrton Senna and we all knew how well that went. Um, but he was always your thinking man's Formula One driver, the professor they used to call him. And uh, the fact that Alpine have joined forces with him seems like a, a very good pairing to me. I think I should be giving that a download. What about the rest of you? Yeah, I think it's certainly worth a listen. He's, he's an extremely intelligent, articulate follower of the racing scene. And, you know, the fact that he is... Um, uh, a consultant to Ren Renault, as was Renault, and now Alpine, uh, as it's been rebranded. Um, so he knows what's going on on the inside. Uh, I haven't heard it yet, but certainly I think it would be worth listening out for. I saw him interviewed recently, and he doesn't seem to do that many interviews. His understanding of what's going on in the 
the F1 paddock is, is, is very good. He seems to be very well informed. What I like about Prost the most, really, is his understatedness or quiet countenance of opinions and that actually he's, he's one of these people who he doesn't need to shout very loudly or, uh, you know, do the, the modern equivalent of clickbait to get articles. He, he just simply remains relevant by knowing exactly what he's talking about and putting his point across in a very quiet, very measured, uh, very sensible way that, that makes it very hard to argue with. I mean, if you sort of counter his opinion with certain other XF1 drivers, I mean, Jack Villeneuve was always one for speaking his mind, but he almost seems to have become a meme of himself these days. And, and Ralph Schumacher all of a sudden seems to be piping up and, and slagging off any and every Formula One driver he can slag off, um, even, you know, all of the ones that, thumped him resoundly over the course of his career he now seems to be slagging them off that's pretty much every f1 driver well it is, yeah it is pretty much and it's that either they're still racing in f1 and still doing okay at it or they thumped him resoundly or uh, went on to win titles and he didn't it seems to be a uh, a bit odd you know it's uh, at least if uh, if it was someone like Eddie Irvine he was uh, he was gobby and he was opinionated but when it came to certain drivers he'd just say yeah he was quicker than me well, why? And he's like, well, he braked later, went into the corner quicker and got on the throttle earlier and I just I couldn't beat the guy and God knows how he managed to do it, I just couldn't do it. So, you know, at least at least Eddie Irvine was always honest about his opinions and if somebody was quicker or better than him, then he'd, uh, he'd say it. But, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what, uh, what Kool-Aid Ralph's been drinking recently. But He has a TV contract he's got to fulfil, so he's been um, arrogant and mouthy, basically, as, as, as he feels he needs to be to fulfil that contract. Ah, fair enough. So it's like it's, it's odd watching uh, Nico Rosberg when he's uh, when he's interviewing people, particularly when it comes to uh, uh, commenting on Lewis Hamilton or uh, being on the same TV screen as Toto Wolff. It's uh, it's an interesting bit of a uh, bit of bantering back and forth, and and just occasionally you're not quite sure if Toto's going to turn around and knock Nico Rosberg out. Uh, or if it's all friendly banter, but at the end of the day, if it was getting a bit needly the other day, and, uh, and Toto said, "Yeah, well, I was hard on you, wasn't I? Because you needed it." And uh, and like Nico said, "Well, yeah, but you did make me a world champion, so that's uh, that's fair enough. You must have been doing something right." So there's there's that. He he knows what to say to get a reaction out of people, but he always counters it with uh, with a decent bit of respect at the uh, at the end of it. I think it goes a long way, doesn't it? So there you go. If you do want to listen to something other than us, or in fact, better after you listen to us, download Prost in the Paddock. We'd definitely got the sense that the Gates had had enough of talking about Formula One. <laughs> yes. There's a line drawn there. <laughs> sorry. Not sorry. Sorry, not sorry, not sorry. Uh, and whilst we're talking podcasts, if you do want to hear a little bit more about what you and indeed what we missed at Goodwood, then do make sure you download our podcast from Goodwood as well. There's a few in the series, so wherever you get your podcast from, presumably where you got this one from, download those as well. As always, if you want to find out a bit more about what we've been up to, or indeed if you want to let us know your thoughts about anything we've spoken about in this podcast, make sure you find us online on all the socials. We are pretty much at UK Motor Talk, wherever you choose to look. And on that note, from me, Mike, I guess it's time to say goodbye. From me, Jim, it's goodbye. Drive safely. From me, Graham, take care of yourself. And from me, Dave, see you later. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.